0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You are listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu.
1: Hello, my name is Josh Galpern, and I'm the Associate Director of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. And I'm in the studio today with Tom Jorling and Leon Billings. And Tom and Leon are here to talk about the history of environmental lawmaking in the United States and what it can tell us about the political stalemate, particularly when it comes to environmental lawmaking that we face today. Tom and Leon were on the staff of the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate, in fact, uh, in the early 1970s when the major and foundational U.S. environmental laws were written. And uh, I apologize for using passive voice, but I I do so intentionally because when I say were written, uh, it's Tom and Leon who were really primarily responsible for writing these laws. That's something I can say now that they're no longer serving under politicians who need to take credit for it. So um, Tom Jorling was on the minority staff of the U.S. Senate uh, and um, s- since that time went on to be the commissioner of the New York Department of Environmental Conservation, uh, vice president, uh, president of environmental affairs at International Paper and uh, another uh, a number of other important positions. And Leon Billings was on the majority staff in the early 1970s of the U.S. Senate. Uh, He has since served for 12 years in the Maryland State Legislature and uh, was the chief of staff prior to that for Senator Muskie, both as senator and then later as secretary of state. And as Leon tells it, he was privatized by Ronald Reagan when he became president uh, shortly thereafter. So, Tom and Leon, thank you very much for joining us. Thank Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. So let me start by asking a sort of basic and, and uh, wide-ranging question to get the discussion started. When you guys were working for the Senate, working for Congress in the early 1970s, you were able to write the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, a number of other important pieces of legislation that became foundational for U.S. environmental law. They, they provided uh, policies that were transplanted into other areas of, of lawmaking and, in fact, into other countries' environmental laws and other laws. Today, we have no environmental lawmaking at the federal level and uh, no lawmaking of almost any sort at the federal level. To what do you attribute this dramatic change?
2: I think the big reason for the change is um, the change in our political structure. Uh, Members of Congress, both House and Senate, spend uh, more than 100% of their time just trying to raise enough money to be reelected. Uh, In our era, senators ran for re-election in the last six months of a six-year term. Uh, House members, the last six months of a two-year term. uh, Money was not the dispositive reason for uh, people winning or losing. Ideology and relationship with constituents and uh, comfort with the electorate were basically there today. Today... money is everything, and um, constituents are largely irrelevant.
0: Tom, do you agree? Yes, uh, certainly money is uh, the dominant factor. I think there are some sort of correlative uh, reasons that accompany money, and they have to do with uh, uh, basically the nature of the political parties uh, at this time. Uh, To them, everything is a a win-lose instead of, in our era, which was a win-win, tried to find areas of agreement uh, that can be reached between different perspectives. And if the attitude is positive towards that process, uh, that can be accomplished, but the attitude is no longer uh, of, that, of that vein. So uh, we have a, a political situation in which uh, even politicians are being rewarded for not doing anything Uh, in the face of some significant issues that they they should be addressing. So it's uh, it's a combination of a lot of factors, not to say uh, the least of which is the 24-hour news cycle, which uh, sort of uh, attracts uh, the politicians to become celebrities instead of uh, lawmakers, and uh, they tend to uh, find their reward in uh, having uh, uh, people fawn all over them rather than uh, a reward that results from accomplishing some public policy. Uh, so there are a number of, of reasons, and uh, I think uh, we have to see this process through to get to get uh, really urgent national problems uh, addressed.
1: So I, I'm wondering how some of the, the elected officials that you worked for in, in the early 70s would have, um, would have fared under the twenty-four hour news cycle and the, the, the fundraising requirements that exist today. So, b- briefly, could you sort of identify a person who you think is a particularly interesting example and tell me, you know, what was their personality like and how might they have behaved today under the current political requirements and c- commercial requirements?
0: Well, the person to whom I owed my patronage, John Sherman Cooper, could not be a public official, uh, uh, an elected. Official in this uh, in this era, his personality was uh, just distinctly uh, opposed to the kind of plastic activities that modern politicians have have to pursue. Uh, he could not bring himself to look at a camera. Uh, he was someone who uh, was very thoughtful, and he had to uh, think through things himself. Uh, He had to even write out longhand what he was going to say before he would, for instance, engage in discussions on the Senate floor, Uh, all of which are attributes that are not rewarded today. Today, it's the glib 30-second soundbite, and uh, that was just not his personal character. So he would not be, uh, and yet here he is, a a very distinguished person. After he left the Senate, he was the uh, first uh, uh, U.S. delegation. There was not quite an ambassadorship to Germany, to East Germany, uh, uh, and then he was ambassador to India. Uh, so his his style was very substantive, very thoughtful. He just would not respond well to somebody saying. Give me a quick answer to some obscure question.
2: John Sh- Sherman Cooper was unique in that regard, but uh, he wasn't alone. <clears throat> the, uh, Cooper may have been the most ethical senator either of us mm. met, and m- most of the senators we worked with were quite ethical. But I, I can give you two examples, both of whom I knew personally. One was uh, Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin, Uh, spent a post-Senate career as uh, president of the Wilderness Society, and the other is Senator Tom Eagleton of Missouri, uh, who had been the Attorney General of uh, Missouri before he came to the Senate. Both of them left the Senate for one reason, and that was they could not stomach the idea of having to get down on their knees, as they put it, and beg for money. They weren't going to sell out their ideology, and because they couldn't wouldn 't sell out their ideology, uh, they weren't going to ask people for money who whose only
1: purpose in giving them money was to change their ideology so with the, with the personalities and and sort of the differences between then and now uh, laid out a bit, I want to return to the environmental laws that that you guys were working on back then. Um, so as I mentioned, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act, two paragons of environmental law. Can you talk a little bit about the provisions of each of those, not in any great detail, but the provisions that you're most proud of, that you think have had the most lasting impact? And um, and then tell us how you came up with these ideas.
2: <clears throat> well, let me give Tom credit. Uh, Tom was the author of the citizen suit provision uh, in the Clean Air Act, which we then carried over to the Clean Water Act. <clears throat> and it was... A, sort of a serendipitous result because um, Senator Muskie's best friend, Senator Philip Hart of Michigan, had introduced a bill written initially by a professor, Joe Sachs, from the University of Michigan. Who just passed away very recently. just passed away, <clears throat> which would have created an uh, environmental cause of action where um, an environmental lawyer could go directly to court to address an uh, environmental insult and uh, resolve it. Muskie firmly, strongly disliked the idea of turning uh, environmental decisions over to to the judiciary, and yet he wanted to make sure he didn't hurt the feelings of his best friend, Phil Hart. So he told Tom and me, he said, uh, find a solution that saves face for Phil, but doesn't turn the judgment uh, over to the judiciary. And Tom came up with the <clears throat> idea of citizen suits and while we had to massage it quite a lot going through the legislative process, it turns out to probably have been the single most important provision of environmental law that exists today. I think
0: the uh, the real, if, if uh, we call it the genius of those statutes, was their internal consistency in setting goals and objectives and formulating a set of mechanisms that were uh, both uh, clear and remove some significant discretion from the administration in implementing them and then were enforceable in the end so that uh, it was a an entire package of of provisions that all related to each other to achieve those those goals. Uh, one of the measures of our success is uh, uh, you may have seen pictures recently of some of the air pollution uh, episodes and conditions in China uh, it, i think it's not uh, unreasonable to say that but for the clean air act of 1970 there we go so uh, uh, it 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 took a a comprehensiveness and an internal uh, uh, consistency of all the provisions to bring about the actual results in reducing dramatically the amount of air pollution and water pollution. In the case of the Clean Water Act,
2: and <clears throat> another thing we did uh, was we venerated government science, and because the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act were basically uh, they were based on the science of the health and welfare effects of air pollution, the science of the health and welfare effects of water pollution. So we said essentially we are going to do what it takes to protect public health and welfare based on good science. And the evolution of these laws over the past 40 years have been primarily premised on being able to demonstrate that without the controls required the, uh, there would be adverse effects on health and welfare in both the air and the water. <clears throat> and, and, and that's made these statutes much less vulnerable to the criticism of being required to expend vast sums of money to implement them.
0: Let me uh, just add another factor about that relationship of what we did to science. The activities of the Congress preceding this era that we're talking about, in the late 60s, early 70s, uh, did accomplish some significant things. And that basically was the earlier clean air and clean water statutes, uh, uh, while deficient in the regulatory vein, did authorize the government to perform science and to do monitoring and you have to remember that it, uh, what we were experiencing at that period was sort of the uh, the inescapable measure of the energy chemical uh, revolution that occurred in association with World War II. Manufacturing just exploded in the United States, and chemical uh, uh, production exploded. So if it weren't for that science that documented... Uh, uh those uh, uh pathways to the environment we would have been hard put to do to do what we did again it it it's a period in which not only were we uh with that government supported science that that we've talked about that we were also uh developing techniques to measure and monitor uh up until that period uh most of the measure of pollution was a what is called a ringelmann chart mm-hmm. for air pollution, which was a three by five card that had different levels of of density of gray yeah. and you would hold it up against a plume of a smokestack and that's how you measured whether or not it was polluting uh, in water. you measured uh, oxygen demand and fecal coliform but what was discovered in effect uh, in that period? was there were chemical compositions to all of those things and we had developed some of the technologies necessary to actually detect and measure quantities of of, of those, uh, what we now call pollutants. So things came together uh, on a factual basis. Our understanding and ability to measure and uh, record effects had been developing very rapidly. What was then needed was the regulatory structure to uh, address those, those learnings.
1: So today, the, there's obviously a lot of debate about trust in science, the role of government in science, uh, and uh, the role that science should play in policymaking. It sounds like what you're saying is that the science was really was one of the primary drivers back then. Were there those in the public or in Congress who looked at the science and said, we don't trust it, or we don't think that we should be making decisions? Based strongly on this, what the science tells us? Oh, yes. <clears throat> we had the, the benefit
2: we had was overwhelming public support for being aggressive in our regulatory process. But the people that we were proposing to regulate did everything they could to discredit the basis on which we were, uh, were acting. Uh, the, their first step would be to say the problem doesn't exist. The second step would be to say, well, it may be a problem out there, but we don't know how to deal with it. The third step was, well, uh, there may be a problem out there, and you know we could put in some technology, but it's way too expensive, and it'll bankrupt us. And we, so we had to go through and basically uh, refute all of those arguments. And uh, in, because of the nature of the process, uh, the, our members, our senators, put the burden on the people who were making those arguments to prove them rather than Tom and I having to come in and say, here's evidence to show they're wrong. So we had, we had a burden of proof shift which really helped us articulate these uh, policies.
0: One of the fascinating things about that period, and I think in some respects it continues to today, is that the management of major corporations were the naysayers. But in those organizations, there were very talented scientists and engineers that uh, uh, had a very dissenting view from that senior management position. For instance, in the automobile uh, area, the producers, the manufacturers of automobiles, took the position that uh, that what we were proposing was not attainable technologically or economically, uh, and uh, if we uh, encountered some of their engineers uh, in staff meetings uh, uh, that we would conduct, and they were independent of their senior managers, they would say, whatever you tell us to do, we can do. Uh, we have the full capability of performing uh, at the levels that you're you're talking about. So w- that gave us some reassurance. Uh, uh, often the people that made those uh, uh, statements to us were producers of the technologies that the automobile industry was going to have to incorporate, namely the catalytic converter and uh, rare uh, metals, catalytic metals, Producers And uh, they were quite confident that w- they could produce automobiles that would meet those standards. It was a question of the senior managers, uh, uh, notwithstanding what we might consider to be the senior managers of the electronics industry in the, in the current day, uh, who, who basically uh, encourage and accelerate and stimulate innovation. The uh, senior managers of basic industries in the United States back in this era repressed development of technology and innovation. Uh, I've often said that uh, uh, the, uh, the the real competition that produced a lot of change did not come from American-based mon- manufacturers; it came from offshore manufacturers. Uh, they well, were, we, we
2: we never, you know, when when we were talking about auto emissions. Uh, the German companies and the Japanese companies never said they couldn't do it. They just said, tell us what we have to do, and we'll do it. The American manufacturers would say, uh, we can't do it, we don't need it, we don't want to do it, and don't
1: tell us to do it. So there was a huge difference. So the, the repression from the from the upper-level management on new technology was a strategy to prevent politicians from enacting new regulatory Absolutely.
0: policy. Absolutely. Yeah, and uh, it, it really uh, had some interesting dimensions. For instance, uh, management would come in and they would say, uh, even if you promulgate these tight emission standards for cars, it's going to take us three or four years to uh, produce those cars. And we would respond with something like, uh, at the Willow Run Ford factory, in World War II, uh, they were making cars, and the government came to them under the uh, uh, pressure of the national interest and national emergency and said, we want you to produce B-24s. From the time they stopped making cars to the time that they uh, uh, produced the first B-24 was six months. All we were talking about is adding a little technology to an automobile and yet they said they couldn't know they can't do that in 3 or 4 years so it 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 was an attitude that still pervades some management uh that is so ironic because we feature ourselves as the as the the nation of innovation of continued uh, development of of technology yet uh managers I don't know what books they read or what literature they're or what golf clubs they're talking to each other at, but they they had the attitude we can't do as opposed to the attitude we can do.
1: So so I then have a question to move from sort of technological innovation to regulatory innovation, uh, a question about addressing climate change. Um, As you both know, the Congress has been unable to uh, agree on any efforts to address climate change, and so currently the President Obama's administration is working to Uh, manage climate change largely through the Clean Air Act. There's a lot of debate about whether the Clean Air Act was intended to include greenhouse gases as air pollutants uh, and whether it matters uh, if it was intended or not. So my question is, I I, and correct me if I'm wrong, I presume that when you guys and your bosses were working on the Clean Air Act, you didn't anticipate something like greenhouse gases being included in the act. Did you anticipate that the act would would be used to include new pollutants that you hadn't considered at the time? Yes. Uh,
0: in in both clean air and clean water, there are direct authorization that um, as additional uh, pollutants, in the case of clean air, especially those that would affect public health, uh, in the case of clean water that would affect uh, adversely the aquatic systems, that those would uh, then be brought into the purview of the regulatory system. Specifically, greenhouse gases raise a, an interesting problem. Uh, methane and the chlorofluorocarbon part of the greenhouse gases clearly can fit easily within, within the Clean Air Act. Carbon dioxide is a tougher matter because at that time, the way you measured clean combustion was the ratio of water and carbon dioxide that was released from the oxidation of a, of a hydrocarbon. Uh, so in effect uh, if those were the two byproducts of combustion you had very clean combustion you didn't have a lot of uh, large molecular weight uh, organic compounds coming out of the of the stack so in effect was a measure of how clean the emissions were uh, so it, it it's a it is a uh, an, an issue but I think now with the ability to relate the uh, buildup of carbon dioxide, to public health consequences, it can fit. Could there be a better fit uh, with a little bit of uh, adjustment of either the Clean Air Act or uh, additional legislation? I think so. Uh, but we've got a problem, and that problem is one that Leon articulates well about what what the precedents are to successfully uh, accomplishing a change in public policy and i think uh, you know your three points would bear mentioning here
2: <laughs> well yeah the, <clears throat> the fundamental underlying uh, concept of of making public policy in the congress of the united states is first uh do the parties the, the people involved agree that there is a problem and in our case uh the vast majority of members agreed that air and water pollution were problems. Then the second question was, well, is this a problem that requires us to uh, address by legislation? And again, the vast majority agreed that that was correct. Then the next question that would follow from that was, well, what kind of legislation? Where do we vest the responsibility? How much regulatory authority do we—and And and basically that's where— Tom and I came we we wouldn't we were not in a position to say this is a problem and you have to agree with us they came to that conclusion <clears throat> then they came to the conclusion if not directly stated that they needed a legislative approach and then it was our job to try to evolve the provisions that would make it work and in in that process you get into the whole dynamics of the American Constitution, the role of states, the lack of authority of the federal government to directly affect, uh, uh, regulate what goes on in municipalities, uh, a whole host of issues. And so we we had to come up, craft that uh, strategy that balanced all of these competing political forces while at the same time trying to achieve the regulatory outcome. I want to go back to this, this well, maybe,
0: Just putting it right back into your context of climate change, what we have a situation now is the deniers have successfully blocked that first step from even being taken. Uh, there is a, you know, you can have a thousand scientists saying uh, that climate change is a serious problem, which it is, and you've seen maybe recent reports from the AAAS and the UN uh apparatus the intergovernmental panel and the and nasa all have released reports saying categorically climate change is a very serious problem but if there is one person out there that says no the media treat that person as equal uh to the other thousand and that prevents you from moving through that sequence that leon just articulated is we haven't gotten past that first major step yet
1: yeah so so the question I want to ask, and I think I may, you may be alluding to the answer here, is so much was done in the early 1970s, and, and as late as the 1990 Clean Air Act amendments. so much was legislation and, and innovative policy took place in the environmental field, and nothing of substance has happened in 20 years, uh, generously. It, so what can we do to, what can you know, the students that I teach and the people who are coming up into environmental law and policy now, what can they do to, to make some progress?
2: Well, one of the best things they could do is take to the streets again. You know, the, um, uh, when, we, uh, when we were writing the, uh, the Clean Air Act, Earth Day had come and gone, and the politicians knew that there was a constituency out there. <clears throat> so public, you know, the, the, these issues will not be resolved inside the political process. They will be resolved by the externalities of our political process coming to bear on the uh, politicians. So, the, as I have suggested before, uh, this is a lowlands problem. You know, the, the the dikes that exist in the Netherlands exist because they wanted to drain and keep from flooding the, the farmland of, of, of the Netherlands. Well. <clears throat> We need to have the same kind of public recognition that there, that climate change is not only real, it's a current event. We had the advantage in 1970 to 70, 68, 70, that period, where air pollution was a current event. Water pollution, rivers were on fire, lakes were dead, water pollution was a current event. The And uh, the opponents to climate change have managed to suppress the currency of the climate change issue. And to a degree, the environmental advocacy community has uh, made a mistake because they're trying to raise fear about something that's going to happen 50 years from now rather than focusing on the direct effects. They they talk too much about... uh, various storms being evidence of climate change, when there's no evidence to that. But there is solid scientific evidence. We have a polar bear that is going to disappear. And and, and that's current. So there's got to be a way to, to make
1: this a current
2: political event.
1: So let me ask one final question. Again, for the benefit of students, I often have conversations with students who want to know the value of uh, being a lawyer versus a scientist or, or neither in making public policy. So uh, Tom, you are a lawyer, and Leon, you are not a lawyer. So each of you, if you can say briefly, you know what is the value of having a law background in, in making policy, and what is the value of not having a law background in making policy? And Tom, I'll start with you.
0: Okay, I, uh, uh, I should add that when I went to teach at Williams College, which is an undergraduate institution, I went there with the distinct objective of persuading the students not to go to law school, but rather to go into graduate studies in the sciences. I said, basically, the sciences are harder. Uh, it's easier to pick up the public policy side of it if you have any intuitive instincts in, that, in those directions. Uh, now, that would sort of belie my own career. Uh, being a lawyer has been very helpful. Uh, not in the sort of technical uh, aspects of of practicing law, but in the use of language and the uh, uh, value of of learning history through the lens of court decisions uh, and the sort of learning about the dynamics of our system and the interaction of the three branches of government, Uh, all of those have been have been very, very helpful, but I suspect the most important course that I took in law was contracts. And the reason it was important was because of its focus on the careful use of language. Uh, You know, you could make a mistake uh, that, in writing a contract, that uh, could be very detrimental to your interests. So uh, the the law and the education of law has been very, very helpful. but I think uh, if, if we're resorting to litigation, uh, resort to litigation is, in a sense, a failure of the legislative process because it said you've left too many things ambiguous, you've left them uncertain and unknown, and you've allowed the interest groups to make a legitimate claim that Congress meant this and the other side to say, no, it meant that, and have somebody else make that decision. Congress uh, in an ideal world would make that, but it's very difficult to write a general statute covering 50 very diverse states and circumstances uh, to have uh, uh, sort of the wisdom to to write all circumstances adequately. So there are always going to be uh, some uncertainties to how legislation is going to be implemented, but certainly the law can help in precision and careful use of language and bringing into the equation uh, a good sense of history.
1: So, Leon, in an unusual change of pace, we'll give the non-lawyer the last word. (laughs) Well, I I studied history and political science because
2: I wanted to be a journalist, and my father said, you don't want to go to journalism school. He'd gone to J school. Uh, First, you need to learn something, and then you can be a journalist. And I found that in the day, in the era that we were on Capitol Hill, when there were a lot more people like me and a lot fewer people like Tom that being able to write uh, a complex subject in uh, two or three paragraphs armed me much more efficiently than my lawyer colleagues who couldn't seem to get anything down to less than five pages. So there's a great deal of advantage uh, that I've I you know I've been practicing law without a license for about forty years, <laughs> we won't and, um, uh, but 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 the ability to write and to communicate uh, is critical. I, I'm I would actually say that there are probably too many lawyers in our political process today, uh, and too few people with backgrounds in science and in history and in <clears throat> and, and, and in, uh, in in public policy. So. You know, I couldn't have done this without Tom. Uh, His his, uh, understanding of the limitations of law were essential. Our chief counsel, Barry Meyer, was a very shrewd lawyer. It was very helpful. We couldn't have done this without the legal minds. But it really helped also have some intellectual, organizational capability that allowed this to be put in uh, sentences that the public could understand
0: let me just follow up because uh leon is so the lawyer on. is going to get the last yeah word. he's going to get the last word uh if you were going to give advice to a law student or any other student it would be work on your writing ability and what has made leon so successful is he writes beautifully and fast uh without those attributes he probably wouldn't have been nearly as successful but he is just a, a wonderful writer and he knows that I suffer some limitations in that regard to what he would always say when he would get one of my memos or something why do you write this turgid prose? <laughs> uh, but that that would be the common theme whether you're a scientist or a lawyer whichever avenues you pursue uh, the more important factor is the ability to express yourself.
1: Well, thank you both very much, not just for being in the studio today, but for all the work you guys have done for the past almost half a century. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been inspirational to people like me and to, to students coming forward, and uh, please keep up the good work. All right. Thank you, thank you Josh.
0: The views and opinions expressed by the interviewers and interviewees as part of On the Environment do not necessarily reflect the views of the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy, its affiliated faculty, staff, or supporters.